And I ask if you could stand with me at a reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. We're looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Acts 1, 12 to 26. Acts 1, 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. That is, the field of blood. For as it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his camp be made, become desolate, and let there be none who dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go into his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, may we do so cognizant and confident of the work of your Holy Spirit given to us. For Lord, you have fulfilled your promise in giving your Spirit to us as your Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. Lord Jesus, just as you had promised. And Lord, we thank you that you have also promised that you will return one day bodily just as you departed. And so we live now as the people of the promise in the middle of two promises. And Lord, as we look to you, as we wait for the fulfillment of your perfect plan in the fullness of time, Lord, help us to be confident in who you are. Help us, Lord, to be busy about what you have called us to do, not through our own strength, but through the strength of your Holy Spirit given to us. Help us, Lord, by your grace and for your glory to be the church, and as your church, to be witnesses of your glory, of all that you came to do, Lord Jesus, so that through your church you would grow your church, and your name will be glorified in this dark world. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as many of you know, I'm a hockey fan. And as some of you know, I cheer for the Ottawa Senators. And some of you might be wondering, well, why would a man in Kelowna cheer for the Ottawa Senators? And others might be wondering, why would anyone cheer for the Ottawa Senators? Well, you see, I grew up in Ottawa, and, and uh, as I grew up as a Maple Leaf fan by default because we didn't have an NHL franchise in Ottawa. But then in 92, when, when Ottawa got a franchise, I, I, I said, well, I'm going to cheer for the Senators. And I tried for a time to cheer for, for both teams. But as the rivalry between the two teams increased, I had to pick a side. So I, I, choose, I, choose, I chose the local home team. Now, there was some success in the, in the late 90s and into the 2000s, but it's been a, a pretty sad state of affairs with the Ottawa Senators for nine of the ten last years. And I'm sticking with them. Now, nobody can really say that I'm a, I'm a bandwagon fan. 
But why have the senators had such a poor showing for nine of the last 10 years, apart from, from 97, sorry, from 2017 when they, they went to the conference final? Well, it's pretty self-explanatory. During the, most of that period, they did not have a full complement of solid players. There were some gaping holes in key positions. And when they did have a, a full complement of solid players during that time, they weren't playing as a team. Now, on paper, they, they had a great team, but they weren't playing like a team. There, there was some major issues in the locker room that affected their on-ice performance. This led to the team being blown up and the, the core being traded to other teams. This was within months of, of their deep playoff run. My point is this. If you're going to do what you need to do, you need to have a full complement of players and you need to play as a team. You need to have a full complement of players and you need to play as a team. Now, of course, we, we aren't here to talk about something as inconsequential as hockey. We're here to worship God and we're, we're here to, to hear from his word. And this morning we're going to be hearing from Luke in the book of Acts as, as God has inspired him as the writer of scripture to write down what, to record what, would what took place in the time leading up to the day of Pentecost between the, the ascension of Jesus Christ and the day of Pentecost and, and what took place it's somewhere in the middle of that 10-day that period between the Ascension and Pentecost. We're going to be talking about how Christ continues to build his church even after his ascension to heaven. We're, we're talking about how the kingdom of God advances through the church. But the same principles that I, I spoke of with respect to, to the hockey team still apply. If we are going to achieve God's goals as a church, it is imperative that we are all in and that we're all unified. It's imperative that we're all in and we are all unified. And we see that in Acts 1, 12 to 26, our passage for this morning. It's every bit as true in our passage today as we sit here as, as Christians in the year 2022 as it was to those gathered disciples 2,000 years ago. As our passage begins, remember that the apostles have been given two promises by God. One is that they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit to become witnesses for Christ. And the other is that Christ would return just as he had departed bodily. Now, at the time of, uh, the, of the time that we're looking at today in Acts 1, 12, 26, neither promise has been fulfilled. This is a time of waiting. They, they, they were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. And they were waiting for the return of Christ. So what were they going to do while they wait for the first promise? So, so, so then in a sense, this, this was a time of, of preparation. Christ was at work preparing the disciples to fulfill his mission. And the question for us is, is how is Christ preparing us while we wait for the second promise, that of Christ's return. Christ is at work here too. Christ is building this local church. He is gathering the full complement of disciples. He is gathering us together as one body in him. So this morning we're going to see how, how Christ in his sovereignty is continuing to build his church as disciples prepare for the promise. This passage will see Christ's sovereignty in building his church in three main ways. And each, each one has specific application for us today. Verses 12 to 14, we'll see Christ's choice of the apostles. Verses 15 to 20, we'll see Christ's choice of Judas. And then in verses 21 to 26, we'll see Christ's choice of a new apostle. So by God's grace, the, the, as we look at this passage, you'll see that the gathered saints are walking faithfully in response to God's sovereign plan. May he empower us to do the same. So first of all, Christ's 
choice of the apostles, verses 12 to 14. As our passage begins, the disciples obey Christ's command from Acts 1-4, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Luke 24-49 records it similarly. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the, the disciples made the return trip back from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that this was a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, this did not necessarily take place on the Sabbath, but a Jew was, was allowed to travel 1.2 kilometers on foot without breaking the Sabbath. And so Luke is simply telling us the distance, not the day. So now back in Jerusalem, they went to the upper room. Now, very likely, this is, this is the upper room. He uses the, the definite article, the. It's not just, just an upper room. The definite article, the, points to the likelihood that this is the same upper room where they had participated in the Lord's Supper and where Jesus had appeared to them after his resurrection. It might even be the same house that they're in in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now here in verse 13, we, we see a list of names. They are the, the gathered apostles. These were the specific men that Jesus had chosen and trained for over three years to be his witnesses, to be his, to be his chief witnesses after his ascension to heaven. Now just, I'll just wait for you. Just do a, a quick count there in, in verse, verse 15, just, or verse 13 rather, count the names of, of the men who are there. Just do, just do a quick scan. Here's a clue. You might have to take off at least one of your shoes and socks. There's, there's, there are 11 men there. There's 11. There's one name that is conspicuous by its absence. Judas. Judas is missing. There were 12 apostles, and now there are only 11. Now we're going to come back and... and talk about Judas at the next, the next point, but, but, but the fact that Judas is not there is very telling. It's very telling. The rest of the apostles are gathered together, waiting. But while they're waiting, they aren't stagnating. Right? They're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs. What are they doing while they wait? While they wait. They're praying. As Calvin points out, here we see two essentials for true prayer, namely that they persevered and they were of one mind. First, they are devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts 2.42, Luke will use the same word to describe the early church's devotion to the apostles' teaching. And in 6.4, to the apostles' devotion to prayer and to the ministry of the word of God. Devotion to, to prayer is a major theme in Paul's writing as well. For example, he says in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Do you pray? Well, I hope that, that we would all say, yes, I pray. But do you devote yourself to prayer? That's quite another thing altogether. Being devoted to prayer is, is a heartfelt pressing in to God in prayer. It's laying hold of God's promises in prayer and committing by God's grace to not let go. It's, it's the prayer of someone who knows God personally, intimately, who, who knows who God is and knows what God is like. And when you have personal knowledge of the steadfast love of God, of his faithfulness to keep his promises, of his absolute sovereignty over all things, his wisdom in doing all things for his glory and for your good, you will be devoted to prayer. You will persevere in prayer. You will do so by his strength and by his grace. But do you want to pray like that? Do you want to be devoted to prayer? 
then pray. Pray for prayer. Pray that God would enable you, would empower you to be devoted to him in prayer. Pray for God to help you to pray like that. But more than that, pray that you'll know God like that. Pray that you'll know God intimately and personally. Pray that you'll grow an intimate relationship with him in the knowledge of who he is. Then you'll pray. I guarantee if you know God like that, you will pray like that. Now, at times, the answer might come in the form of a, of a trial in which you realize how much you need him. And I was going to get a reference this. Luke quoted it earlier from Spurgeon that you kiss the wave that, that throws you against the rock of ages. Now, I don't know about you, but the times that, that I felt closest to God and most intimately relating to God, especially in prayer, are in times of deep trial. Times of deep trial. But it's in those times that, that, that you discover that it's worth it. That he is worth it. Even whatever trial he leads you into. So they're praying diligently. They were devoted to prayer. But notice too that these disciples weren't just praying individually. They're praying corporately. That They're praying together. It wasn't just apostles. They're praying with one with one accord with, Luke tells us, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So it wasn't just the apostles that, that Jesus chose to be witnesses after his ascension. He, he chose these men and women too. Notice that it's, it's men and women. Remember how Luke highlights the, the prominent role of women. Don't forget that this was extremely countercultural in that misogynistic culture. Luke was showing that women have vital importance in the kingdom of God. Luke told us, remember back in Luke 8, that, that women help support Jesus in his ministry. He mentioned three specifically, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Herod's household manager, and Susanna. Now these, these three women were most certainly present. Mary, Mary Jesus' mother, was also there. Now remember, in Luke, she had an especially prominent place in his gospel account, even, even more prominent than you see in the other gospel accounts. But this is the last time that, that Mary is mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus' brothers, well, actually his, his half-brothers there as well. Remember back in, in John chapter 7 that they hadn't believed in Jesus, that they had actually mocked Jesus. But now, here after the resurrection, they are numbered among his disciples. Luke tells us down in verse 15 that there were about a hundred, there were 120 people gathered. These were, were men and women. These were the men and women that Jesus chose to continue his ministry, to build his church. The, the apostles and the rest of the disciples would play a vital role in advancing the kingdom of God. There are all kinds of, of theories as to why there, there's 120. Some would believe there's a, a symbolic representation that's this related to the function of the 12 apostles to judge the 12 tribes of Israel or of the 120 Jewish men that the law required to establish a community with his own counsel. But I think it's best just to take it at face value and, and recognize the fact that there were 120 men and women gathered together, praying together. They, they were praying with one accord. They were praying with one mind. And what is the basis for their unity in prayer. Well, first of all, their, their unity was in Christ. They, they were one in Christ. They were brothers and sisters in Christ as those who have been bought by his blood. Brothers and sisters, we are one in Christ. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. That is the ultimate basis for our unity. Now, now we have doctrinal unity, we praise God for that, but that too is grounded on our unity in Christ. But we need to recognize that we, we don't always walk in unity. Right, right? There, there's times that, that, that we, we look more, than, more like strangers, even like, like enemies, than brothers and sisters. 
Now, to the extent that we do that, we are, to the extent that we do not walk in unity, we are forgetting the basis of our unity. We're forgetting that, that we've been purchased with the blood of Christ. We're forgetting that, that Christ in his own body has broken down the wall of hostility between us and God. And then necessarily as a consequence of that, he has also broken down the wall of hostility between us and each other. He's made us one in Christ. And it's also to the extent that we, we do not walk in unity, we're, we're forgetting the unity that we have in the word of God. Quite often when there's a lack of unity, it's because we are, we are focusing on things that, that are, are secondary or, or tertiary at best. And we're making secondary tertiary issues become primaries, at least in our hearts. So may we recognize the unity that Christ has purchased for us. And may we walk in that unity for the glory of God. But John Stott points out that there's something quite specific that, that creates, creates unity in, in this time of prayer. Something quite specific. He, he says that there can be little doubt that the grounds of this unity and perseverance in prayer were the command and promise of Jesus. He had promised to send them the Spirit soon. Acts 1, 4, 5, and 8. He commanded them to wait for him to come and then begin their witness. We learn, therefore, that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. On the contrary, it is only his promises which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. So Stott is saying here that, that their unity in this instance is grounded specifically in the promise of Christ to send his spirit and to send them out as witnesses. So they're unified in this promise as it applies to them all. Again, not just to the apostles, but to the, the, the men and women that he has chosen as his disciples, small d disciples. Now we'll see next time, Lord willing, how, how God has answered their prayer for the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We, we don't have to wait very long. Man. They, they didn't have to wait long. It was only 10 days between the ascension and the, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. And, but we here as the church in the year 2022 have, have already received the promised Holy Spirit. Right? As Christians, we are all indwelt with the Holy Spirit according to the promise of Christ. But we can widen the application of this to, to the unity that we have in prayer as we pray according to the Word of God. Right, just, just as these disciples were gathered together according to praying according to the promise of God, so we too in the church today can also gather in prayer and be unified in prayer as we pray according to the word of God. By basing our prayer on scripture, we can be unified in prayer. And even more than that, we'll be unified with God and with his will in prayer. Now, now it's okay to, to pray for things that are not specifically part of God's promise. Like, for example, in our family, we, we prayed and, and we continue to pray earnestly for Liam's health, as we do for all of our kids. But, but as, as we, we had the difficult news that that that, that the Lewises and, and the Moraeses are, are experiencing now is they experience this, this very difficult news. Of course, that they're praying for their children. We're all praying for your children. But even more than that, even more than that, we, we pray most fervently for the things that God promises in his word and as they apply to this specific situation. We pray for those things that are promised. We pray for God's glory. We pray for their sanctification. Brothers and sisters, God will answer that prayer. You, you, you need to, to, whatever situation you're dealing with, you know, oh, what, what, what pain we, oh, what, Forfeit we often comfort. Oh, what, what, what pain we, we needless bear because we do not offer everything to God in prayer. We, we need to pray for everything. But our most fervent prayer 
needs to be specifically for the things that God has promised us in his word. Our brothers and sisters were facing persecution. Of course, they pray that, that the persecution would be relaxed. We, we pray for that earnestly for them as well. But more than that, we pray that God would be glorified and that they'd be strengthened in the persecution. We pray for the things that God has promised in his word. When we base our prayers on God's word, we know that we receive the answer to prayer because we are praying according to his promises. God speaks to us in his word, and we speak his word back to him in prayer. If you remember in the series that I did it several years ago uh, on the Lord's Prayer from, from Matthew 6, 5 to 15, Jesus was not giving there a, a, a rote prayer, something we just, just pray the words of the Lord's Prayer. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. That was not the purpose of Jesus' teaching there. He was, was giving us a model prayer or a pattern of prayer that, that can form the basis of our daily prayer. As, as you work through the, the address to, to our Father in heaven and, and work through the, the six petitions of that prayer, the, these are representative of, of, what, of, what, of, of what we need to be seeking in prayer. Of, first of all, God and his glory in the first three petitions and then the things that we need in the final three petitions. And, and the, one of the key ways that we are to pray according to the, the Lord's prayer, or the, the pattern prayer, is to pray, your kingdom come. We have to pray for the advance of Christ's kingdom. And it's good to pray for the advance of Christ's kingdom because Christ's kingdom has been promised. And so when we when we when we pray for the advance of Christ's kingdom, a large part of, of this prayer is, is for missions. It's for missions at home and for missions abroad. It's for our own evangelism here and for those like the, the Shanes and the Jabellos that we support overseas. God has sovereignly decreed that his kingdom would advance. And God has sovereignly decreed that he would advance his kingdom in response to the prayers of his people. And God has sovereignly decreed that his people would pray. And that's why these disciples, these 120, are gathered together praying fervently. Because God is at work in their hearts and his decree that they would pray Just how often do you think about the fact that, that God has ordained that he would work in response to your prayers? Think about the privilege that you have as, as, a, as a, a creation of God to partner with God in the advance of his kingdom. Think about this. And, and may God use it to inspire you to pray big prayers. To pray big prayers for God and his kingdom. William Hendrickson points out that in the history of missions, it has been demonstrated again and again that the coming of the entrance of the reign of God into human hearts requires earnest prayer. William Carey is, is renowned as the father, father of the, the modern missions movement with his work in India in the 18th century. But the impact of prayer on his endeavors is often overlooked. Again, many know Carey's name, but, but far fewer have heard of the names of his friends. Church historian Michael Haken helpfully reveals the fact that Carey was part of a, a close-knit circle of like-minded friends without whom little of what he longed for would have been realized. And that group included, of course, Kerry himself, along with Joshua Marshman, William Ward, John Sutcliffe, Andrew Fuller, John Ryland, and Samuel Pierce. And Kerry testified to the fact that without their prayers prior to his departure for India and their ongoing prayers while he was in India, Without their faithful prayers prior to and throughout, his ministry would not have been able to achieve much. He would not have been able to achieve much. John Sutcliffe, one of these men, wrote, 
The grand object in prayer is to be that the Holy Spirit may be poured down on our ministers and churches, that sinners may be converted, the saints edified, the interest of religion revived, the name of God glorified. Let the whole interest of the Redeemer be affectionately remembered and the spread of the gospel to the most distant parts of the habitable globe be the object of your most fervent requests. Are you praying for the advance of God's kingdom in the world? Pray fervently and watch what God does. Very few know of these men's names. Very few will remember our names. But as we pray for God's kingdom to come, the name of Christ becomes known. Brothers and sisters, Christ is making himself known through your prayers. So this this unified, devoted prayer of of the apostles along with the rest of the disciples, all of them chosen by God, is evidence of the fact that Christ was building his church. He was building his church in them, and he would build his church through them. Brothers and sisters, Christ has chosen you to be his witnesses. He has chosen you to advance the kingdom of God through your prayers. This is not just a command. It's a promise. Pray that promise. But as we move on to verses 15 to 20, we realize that that Christ didn't just choose the apostles and the other disciples. So we see Christ's choice of Judas in verses 15 to 20. So now Peter stood up among the rest of the apostles and the other assembled disciples. Now your English Bible here says brothers, but in the original language, it's actually brothers and sisters. You see that from the context. We're seeing here Peter's ascendancy as a leader among the apostles. No, not the first pope, but but certainly as, as the leader among the apostles, the leader of the apostolic band. This also reveals the generosity of Christ's forgiveness and the effectiveness of his reinstatement of Peter, as testified to in John 21. Remember, three times Peter denied Jesus. And three times Jesus asked Peter in John 21, do you love me? And then he, Peter answered in the affirmative three times and Jesus told him, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So he's been reinstated by Christ himself and his ascendancy has, or his, his reinstatement rather, has been recognized now by the other apostles and by the gathered disciples. Now Peter's address here is that the first uh, of the addresses that, that take a prominent place in Acts. Apart from, from one message in Acts 15, Peter's messages all take place between um, Acts 1 and Acts 11. In Acts 13, the, the focus is going to shift to the Apostle Paul, who will be the primary speaker. But Peter here addresses the issue of, of Judas. Judas is, in a sense, he's the, the elephant who's not in the room. You, know, you can imagine, you can understand how the, the question of Judas' apostolicity would be natural. He was numbered among the apostles. He was allotted a share in their ministry. He would have done much of the same things as the other apostles. He would have taught like the other apostles. He would have performed signs like the other apostles. In fact, when we, when we get to the, to the Lord's Supper, when Jesus prophesied that one of them would betray him, they didn't all say, it's Judas. No, what did they say? They said, is it, is it I? They, they had no idea of what was in Judas's heart. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew. So Peter addresses the issue of Judas. Even though Judas was chosen as an apostle by Jesus, he betrayed Jesus and handed him over to the Jewish authorities who handed him over to the Romans who crucified him. Now from a a human perspective, the question naturally arises, well, did Jesus make a mistake? Did Jesus choose the wrong guy? So so how does Peter answer the question of Judas? He opens up the scriptures. 
He opens up the scriptures. He confirms God's word that Judas' betrayal of Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. It was part of God's plan. It did not take Jesus by surprise. Jesus knew all along who Judas was. Jesus chose Judas full well, knowing full well what Judas was going to do. Now, Jesus did not make Judas do it. Judas, Judas chose to reject Jesus out of the hardness of his heart, and he was eventually possessed by Satan. However, he acted again according to his own wicked will. Satan did not force Judas to do anything that Judas didn't already want to do. But here in verses 18 and 19, Luke makes a parenthetical comment. This is not part of, of Peter's message. Many modern Bibles will have this in brackets. Luke is interjecting to explain what happened. Now this man acquired a field with his, the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Now, sorry, kids, you might have nightmares about that. Adults, too, it's, it's disgusting. And it all and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, with, with Luke's interjection here, some see this as a contradiction with Matthew 27, where it's recorded that Judas threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, this, this blood money, he that he he threw it back into the temple and he realized what he'd done. And then he went in, and then he left the temple and hanged himself. So as soon as there a contradiction between Luke here and Matthew, we know that God's word never contradicts itself. The only infallible interpreter of scripture is scripture. Scripture never contradicts itself. So what's going on here? Well, it's really it's actually really quite simple. The, the, the chief priests used the blood money that Judas had thrown into the temple to buy the field of blood. So they, they so then Judas indirectly becomes the purchaser of this, this field of blood. He, he was, he was the, the indirect purchaser. It's also quite simple to ex- explain that the manner of Judas' death. There, there's also, some would say, that there's a contradiction here. That, that because Judas hanged himself in, in Matthew 27, that, that he, when he fell down and, and his, his bowels burst open and, and fell out, that there's a contradiction. But again, it's relatively easy to explain here that, that very likely what happened here is Judas hanged himself and, and then the, the rope broke and his entrails, when he fell to the ground, his body fell to the ground, his, his entrails burst out of his stomach. Or else possibly that, that when he, that when he, he died, that his, his dead body was left there and it bloated and, and, and eventually the, the entrails came out and this is a very graphic depiction of, of what took place. There, there's a reason for that. It's, it's revealing the judgment of God. We see something similar with the death of Herod in Acts chapter 12, where, where we'll, we'll read that, that after an oration where he accepted the glory that was due God alone, that, that he was eaten by worms and he died. It wasn't, wasn't the other way around. He didn't die and that was eaten by worms. He was eaten by worms while alive and then he died. The, the point here is that, is that this is God's judgment being poured out upon these men. Now, it's assumed that the field of blood was the place that the Judas died, but the scriptures actually don't say that. It, it might have been, but he might have committed suicide in another location, and the, a, a separate location was purchased with that 30 pieces of silver. Notice here, though, that, that Peter says in verse 16 that the scripture had to be fulfilled. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he's saying here, this is, this is a, a great passage for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You see it as well in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, that, the, that, the, the, that no prof, prophecy would go, of God was comes from any private interpretation, but men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that, that every word of God in the original manuscripts 
was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that is true here of these Psalms of David as it is true of all of Scripture. So Peter here is quoting Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 to show that this was God's part of God's plan. That this, this defection, this apostasy of, of Judas was part of God's plan. But when you read Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, you, you don't see the name Judas. You don't see the name Jesus. What you see when you read these Psalms is that, is that David is crying out to God against someone who's betrayed him. Now, when you think of, of David's life and, and some of the hardships that, that David suffered, this could be any one of a number of people. It, it could have been Saul. But more likely, it was Ahithophel, once David's advisor, but who became a traitor, became an advisor to David's son Absalom in his attempted coup. And in both Psalms, in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, David cries out to God for help and asks that God's judgment be poured out on his enemies. This is known, these are both known as imprecatory Psalms. Now, imprecation is, is a prayer that God's curse would come down. Now, we feel uncomfortable when, when, we, when we read of these, these prayers for judgment on enemies. But what this really amounts to is it's giving, the giving over of one's enemies to God. It's asking for God's justice and God's judgment. There is... It's real application here to, to David and his own circumstances in the Psalms that, that Peter quotes. But these Psalms are not just about David. You see, David is a type of Christ. In, in his kingship, he is a type of Christ. He is, he is a picture that points forward to Jesus, David's greater son. So then the ultimate fulfillment of these Psalms is not just on David's enemies, but on Christ's enemies. On Christ's enemies. And Judas experienced that judgment. In the moment, Judas gained in his betrayal. He gave full vent to his hatred of Christ. He gained 30 pieces of silver. But then he almost immediately lost everything. He lost his apostleship, not by his death, but by his apostasy. He lost his life. He came under God's judgment and received God's curse. He who had been numbered among the apostles had to be removed because his heart was not with Christ or with the other apostles. So then we see God's omniscience. Christ did not make a mistake when he chose Judas. Furthermore, we see his sovereignty, that Christ chose Judas to fulfill his mission. But we also see man's responsibility. Judas acted, again, according to his own wicked will. Again, that was a specific situation, but, but what is the application for us? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that apparent setbacks, even catastrophic trials, are under God's sovereign purpose and prayer. So just on, on one level, don't be shocked when well-known teachers fall. It was brought to my attention just this past week that another prominent pastor has been disqualified through immorality. In this day of popular preachers, it is it is exceedingly common. But it can also happen to relatively obscure pastors as well. Pray for me. Pray earnestly for me that I won't fall. Likewise, don't be surprised when people sin against you. Even people in the church. Sinners sin. Now we're brothers and sisters in Christ. In a sense, we're also brothers and sisters in sin. We sin against each other all the time. So when someone offends you, don't commit murder in your heart by, by gossiping about them or by slandering them. Pray for them. 
and then lovingly come alongside them and gently call them to repentance. And if they do not repent, don't try to be judge, jury, and executioner. Hand them over to God for his righteous judgment. We need to recognize that, that sometimes the Lord builds his church through subtraction. Right? Sometimes God adds by subtraction. Now that does not mean that, that everyone who leaves you or leaves the church <coughs> is not part of the church. Someone's departure from you or from the church might only be for a season. It, it, it might be for, for them to, to, to do another work somewhere else. But don't judge the servant of another, Romans 14.4. Furthermore, don't focus on what that person did to you or didn't do to you. Maybe it's the person you're thinking about right now. Focus instead on what, what God is doing in you through them. Again, brothers and sisters, don't, you don't grow in Christ as quickly when people treat you nicely. Quite often, one of the chief ways you will go, grow in Christ is when people treat you like they treated Christ. Now, I'm not saying that, that you are, are Christ or I am Christ and that we, we deserve special treatment. But, but when people treat you shamefully, in a sense, they're treating you like they treated Christ. And it's one of the chief ways that through the power of the Spirit, you will be sanctified. You will grow into the image of Christ. Apparent setbacks in the church or in your life are just that. They are apparent setbacks. Christ is still building his church, and he'll even do it through those who make themselves your enemy. Leave it to the Lord. He will make it right in time. Well, finally and, and quickly, we also see Christ's choice of a new apostle in verses 21 to 26. Peter now explains that the full complement of the apostles must be made up. There can't be just 11. There has to be 12. And so Peter here reasons through a way to, to choose a replacement for Judas. Well, first of all, he, he lays down the qualifications of an apostle. Right? Those who must have been with them during the whole time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the time he was taken up from us in, in his ascension. So at this, in order to be an apostle, someone had to have been there through the, the whole ministry of Jesus for over, over three years as a direct disciple of Jesus. As Daryl Bach explains, that the replacement will have a, a complete experience of Jesus' ministry and teaching from the A, the baptism of John, to the Z, he'd probably say Z, the ascension. The, the office of the apostle, by, by application, can, can no longer exist because no one can meet these qualifications. So Peter first then, then lays down the qualification for an apostle, and then second, he lays down the primary mission of an, of an apostle. He must become a witness of Christ's resurrection. That's exactly what Jesus told them in Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria until the utter end of, until the ends of the earth. Again from Daryl Bach. The resurrection is the key event to give testimony to, but this witness must be from someone who also has a knowledge of what Jesus did on earth, as well as the results of the resurrection and subsequently the ascension. The continuity of exposure of, to Jesus is central to the special role of the witness and underscores the credibility of the eyewitness tradition the apostles produced. So then with those qualifications in mind, out of all the assembled disciples, there were two primary candidates. Joseph, called Barsabbas, was also called Justice, well, that's quite the handle, and Matthias. There's a dilemma. There are two men, but only one vacant spot. See, there had to be 12 apostles, because there are going to be 12 apostles who will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 apostles would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. 
two men, one vacant spot. <clears throat> so what did they do? They prayed. They prayed. I hope that you're beginning to see the importance of prayer. These men were many things, but they were certainly prayers. Right? We saw them earlier praying. We see them again praying. Listen to their prayer, verses 24 and 25. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Notice they're, pray, they're praying directly to the Lord. They're asking Jesus to choose the replacement for Judas. Again, Judas lost his apostleship by his apostasy, not by his death. There is no apostolic succession. When apostles die, they are not replaced. When James is martyred in Acts 12, no one is chosen to take his place. So then they've, they've, they've now considered the qualifications and the role of an apostle. They prayed. What did they do next? They cast lots. They cast lots. Now, now these lots might have been, have been stones with, with the man's name on them. Though Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justice, would probably need a, a much bigger stone than Matthias if he was going to have his name written on it. They, they, there might have been just a, a white stone and a black stone. We simply don't know. But the point is that this was a, a massively important decision. And they wanted to make the right choice, so they cast lots. Does this mean that we should do the same thing? Does this mean that when we have an important decision, that we should also cast lots? Should, should we flip a coin or, or roll the dice? Is this the, the job I should take? Or is this the woman I should marry? Come on, sevens! It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. We, we, we don't see lots being cast anywhere else in the New Testament, apart from the, the lots that were, were cast by the, the soldiers for the, the garments of Jesus at the cross. And we recognize that, that God is sovereign over every cast lot, every flipped coin, every, every thrown die. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 18.18 says the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. So, so should we follow the apostles' practice? Well, this, this brings up an, an important principle when we're studying the book of Acts. You see, Acts... Acts is, is largely narrative. Right? It's, it's a description of what took place, not a prescription at times of what we must do. In order to, to know whether this is a command that, that must be followed, you need to consider the immediate context, and you need to look at the wider context, the Word of God, to, to find other, other precepts, direct commands, or, or principles that we should obey. And so if you consider the wider context of Scripture, especially the New Testament, you can, can be assured that you are not to, to be casting lots to make, to make decisions. And you see the reason why in, in the very next passage. At Pentecost. You see, with the, the giving of the, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit upon all believers, the Holy Spirit will guide the, the whole church into truth, into God's truth, you not need to, to, to rely on things like lots. You rely on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The Holy Spirit has become our guide. So, so when, we, when we consider the, the application of this, there is a, I think there's an application here that, that you can make and when you think of, of decision-making. You know, I can, I can testify to times when I was kind of mysterious in, in my, in my decision-making process. I was looking for, for signs and things like that. But, but I, I began to see that that was, that that was not what was commanded in Scripture. You know, I, I used to consider Gideon as an example that I should follow. You know, it was, it was laying out a fleece. Now, is God sovereign over whether the fleece is wet, over whether the fleece is dry? Yes. But God had told Gideon specifically what he was supposed to do. And it was doubt that made him go back looking for signs. 
Again, that's Judges is, is our narrative, and, and, and so we can't take the example of Gideon and then apply it across the board in our own lives. We have to think about the wider pattern and principle of Scripture. But we can see here an application of, of the way that the apostles made decisions. And we, we can seek to, to, to understand and to learn from this. So first of all, it's that they knew that there had to be a replacement from Scripture. A replacement for Judas. So they're following Scripture. And then they, they used their, their God-given wisdom to understand that, that, that um, as, an, as an apostle, as a witness of Jesus, that they should be eyewitness, that the witness should be, so that this witness needed to be an eyewitness of Jesus himself. That he must have the same qualifications as they did. And then through that, they, they narrowed the process down to Joseph and Matthias. And they prayed. They prayed. And even though Jesus wasn't, wasn't there physically with them, he was spiritually present, and they could pray to him and be confident that he would answer their prayers. So when you have a, a, a big decision to make in it, we're not making decisions like who the next apostle is going to be. But, but there are decisions, that are there important decisions that you are going to make in your life. And when you need to do that, you look to the word of God. You seek wise counsel. Uh, men or women who are, are going to, to be guided by the principles of the word of God are going to give you wide, wise counsel. And then you pray. And trust that God is sovereign over every decision you make. And so you commit the decision to him and trust the outcome to him. So we can, we can think about about the, the, this application to us, but but more broadly, we can argue here from the, the lesser to the greater. More broadly here, as we, we think about the application of this, we, we can recognize the fact that if, if Jesus chose the replacement apostle, uh, the replacement apostle to be his witness, won't he chose, choose those who are going to be his witnesses today? You see, if, if you can, can trust Jesus in the big stuff, you can trust him in, in, the, in the stuff that, for global significance, you can trust him for, for the, the issues that relate to your life and for the church today as well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has chosen you to be a witness of him. He has chosen you. This is your local church. He has chosen you to be a part of this particular church at this particular time. He has chosen you to hear this particular message today. You need to recognize that, that the church needs you. You are a part of the, the full complement of this church. And yeah, you, I understand that, that you, can, you can tune in and, and watch on, on YouTube. But it's not the same as being here. It's not the same as being with the gathered saints. You need to be here. God has chosen you to be here. To be all in to be one with the body of Christ, to bear witness of Christ with all of the other disciples that he has gathered together. Christ has ascended to heaven, but he is continuing to build his church. He did it through the apostles, and he's continuing to do it through you. So pray. Pray that God would continue to do that. Pray that God would continue to add to our number. Pray that, that, that through the ministry of this church, that Christ would build the church. Pray that, that, that God would continue to, to help us to bear witness for him. Pray to him and then trust him. Trust in his sovereign plan. Pray that, that even when things, when things go the way you want and when things don't go the way you want, that God is still building his church. And he's still building you as part of his church. So continue to commit yourself. Continue to commit this church 
to him in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this local church. We thank you that you are building this church for the glory of your name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have called us out of darkness into light. We praise you that you have, have called us from rebellion to worship. We, have, we pray, praise you that you have called us from blasphemy to being bearers of, of the truth of who you are. Help us, Lord, as your people to pray, to pray to you earnestly, conscious of, of who you are and who you are for us in Christ. Help us to pray that you would continue to glorify your name in us and through us. Not so that our name can be advanced, but that the glory of your name might be advanced so that your kingdom will come. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.